Welcome. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast, the show that cuts through the fog of war and updates you about the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. Don't forget to like, comment and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts. Hello, I'm Marina Yevshan, co-host of the Russia-Ukraine War Report Podcast, and today is September the 27th, 2023. It's been 3,501 days since Russia's illegal occupation of Crimea on January 27, 2014, and one year and 216 days since Russia expanded its war of aggression against Ukraine. Today's podcast looks at the events that happened yesterday. You can use a Russia-Ukraine war map to help you visualize the areas discussed today. You can find a link in the podcast's description. The Russia-Ukraine War Report is compiled by our team from around the world. Today's report includes information from our direct contacts and journalists in Ukraine, the Russian Ministry of Defense and the Ukrainian General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine Morning Reports, Operational Commands North, South and East of Ukraine, Open Source Intelligence, our in-house team of analysts and geospatial experts, and pro-Ukrainian and pro-Russian mail bloggers and social media channels with a track record of trying to be accurate. We have one mission – the truth. Because the truth matters. Let's start with the daily assessment, which has some updates. We maintain our statement that the continued soft response by Ukraine's allies after Russian aggression on Ukraine's border will continue to encourage Moscow to take additional risks, with the potential to cause an international incident that could lead to a military response. The Russian Ministry of Defense remains in a chaotic state, incapable of creating mission cohesion between penal units, mobics, conscripts, elite forces and proxy forces. The inability of Russian military leaders to stop the ongoing Ukrainian offensive and retake the battlefield initiative has put significant pressure on Russian chief of staff Valery Gerasimov, who has been in charge of all Russian forces in Ukraine since January 2023. Ukraine continues to hold the initiative theater-wide, and the number of combat-ineffective and combat-destroyed Russian units is growing, eroding Russian combat potential in numerous areas of operation. There remains a possibility of partisan violence within Russia after the killings of Evgeny Prigozhin and Dmitry Utkin. President Putin's stature, both inside and outside of Russia, remains in a weakened state. The perceived slow progress of the ongoing Ukrainian offensive, questions about the capabilities of Ukrainian military commanders at the battalion and brigade level, and ongoing anti-corruption measures highlighting the problems within the Ukrainian government continue to strain Western support. Western partners are still not meeting their promised military training, heavy equipment and ammunition delivery dates, negatively impacting Ukraine's military capabilities. Additionally, Ukraine created naval parity in the Black Sea using asymmetrical warfare is not receiving the proper amount of attention in the information space. Russia will attempt to destroy Ukraine's energy infrastructure over the fall and winter, and the possibility of an intentional nuclear accident caused by Russian occupiers at the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant 
remains low, but the threat should be taken seriously. Today's action report starts in the Donbass. Multiple Russian sources reported that Ukrainian forces continued offensive operations in the Serebransky woods near Dibrova. Moving to an assessment of the situation in Luhansk, Russian propagandists continue to push a narrative of a large Russian troop buildup in occupied Luhansk and northern Kharkiv, with almost no evidence to support the claims. While elements of the recently formed Russian 25th Combined Arms Army have been deployed in the Luhansk region, they were sent to the line of conflict before completing training. The Russian units have been used in piecemeal attacks and cannot take the initiative. The rhetoric is a diversion to lock Ukrainian reserve forces in place. In occupied Luhansk, our analysis on September 26 of the cruise missile strike on the ammunition depot in Sorokene was accurate. Satellite images from Planet Labs showed a large fire at the site, with secondary burns caused by missiles and rockets cooking off. Our analyst team used satellite images from Sentinel Hub that showed a large area of northern Sorokine on fire. The Crimean Tatar insurgent group Atesh claimed they have been operating in Luhansk for several weeks, and during the last 10 days they have scouted out the location of fuel depots and sabotaged five trucks. They also took credit for the kidnapping and disappearance of several Russian soldiers. In the northeast Donetsk region, heavy fighting continued east of the railroad grade near Klishchivka and Andreevka. Two videos showed Ukrainian drones and artillery striking Russian troops defending the T-513 highway. A firebase, bunker, ammunition cache, a BMP-2 infantry fighting vehicle, or IFV, an Oazlov, a Kamaz truck, and two squads of Russian troops were eliminated. Northeast of Zelenopilia, a Ukrainian drone struck a well-concealed Russian forward operating base. If you are not familiar with an Oazlov, it is a van that was first designed during the Cold War. It looks a lot like a Scooby-Doo van with windows, and Russian troops use a lot of them due to a truck shortage. In southwestern Donetsk, there was an increase in activity in the Avdiivka area of operation, or AO. The Russian Ministry of Defense claimed that Ukrainian forces were on the offensive near Krasnohorivka. Two squads of Russian soldiers and an IFV suffered heavy losses during a failed attempt to advance north from Opetne. Ukrainian sources reported that Russian troops tried to advance through the no-man's land between Vodyne and Severne without success, and Russian troops attacked near Pervomaiska. Further south, fighting continued in and near Marinka. In the Staromlinivka AO, Russian and Ukrainian sources reported that Ukrainian troops were on the offensive near Priyutne. In Zaporizhia, Ukrainian troops continued their operational pause. Fighting continued along the entire axis from west of Robotene, the northern edge of Novoprokopivka, 
and along the Surovikin line following the 160-meter and 140-meter heights to Verbove. New geolocated videos confirmed our previous map adjustments, showing Ukrainian troops in the Russian defensive lines. A counterattack by the Russian 247th Airborne Assault or VDV regiment couldn't dislodge Ukrainian troops. The Ukrainian 46th Air Mobile Brigade reported that further advancement would be difficult until the 170-meter hill east of Novoprokopivka is secured. At Novoprokopivka, Russian sources claimed there was a marginal Ukrainian advance. Ukrainian source Deep State aligned with our September 25th assessment that Ukrainian forces are in an operational pause and consolidating recent gains. In their daily report, the general staff of the armed forces of Ukraine wrote the current focus is inflicting losses in manpower and equipment on the occupying troops and exhausting the enemy along the entire front line. Time for another assessment from our analysts. Ukrainian forces maintained the initiative. The decision by Russian commanders to hold the 170-meter heights southeast of Novoprokopivka isn't completely flawed, but it is coming at a high cost. We maintain that the ability of Russian forces to maneuver is compromised by the continued advance of Ukrainian forces, pushing them closer to their anti-armor defenses to the south. Unless Ukraine's combat potential becomes exhausted, which there is no sign of, Russian forces will eventually have to withdraw. In occupied Zaporizhia, Ukrainian forces continued to attack Russian ground lines of communication and target troops and supplies in Tokmak. A geolocated video showed several trucks hit by an M30A1 rocket fired by HIMARS. The warhead has 182,000 tungsten BBs. Now let's talk about the Black Sea, including the countries of Romania and Bulgaria, occupied Crimea and the Mykolaiv and Odessa regions. In occupied Crimea, the illegitimate mayor of Sevastopol, Mikhail Razvazhaev, demanded an investigation into why guards at the Fisherman Palace of Culture kicked out people who tried to enter the bomb shelter on September 25. Razvazhaev wrote, quote, The incident that happened the day before, when a security guard asked people to leave the building and go to their shelters, is beyond the pale of stupidity or planned sabotage. Unquote. Romanian officials were mostly quiet after yesterday's border attack. In good news, the Orlivka-Isakcha border crossing between Ukraine and Romania was reopened. Petru Gabor, a member of Volunteers Without Borders, told Romanian news agency DG24 that the second Shahid-136 kamikaze drone landed 30 to 40 meters away from the Romanian ferry which had a bus with 60 civilians on it. A spokesperson for the Inspectorate for Emergency Situations in Tulcea, Romania, said an air raid alert was not sent to residents because the Ministry of National Defense of Romania makes the determination. Speaking at the OSCE Permanent Council, 
the foreign minister of Romania, Luminita Odobescu, said that the, quote, constant targeting of Ukrainian civilian infrastructure is a war crime and impacts Ukraine's neighbors, Romania included, unquote. The drone attack on Orlivka came three days after the United States deployed four F-16s to Festesti Air Base in Romania to enhance air policing of the Black Sea region. In Kherson, Russian attacks have been relentless. Kherson Oblast Administrative and Military Governor, or OVA, Oleksandr Prokudin said Russia carried out 119 fire missions on Free Kherson, firing 555 munitions, rockets, bombs, and two guided cruise missiles. The attacks wounded 12 and struck residential areas, schools, a factory, a prison, and a hospital. The Korabelny district was hit by two OMPK glide bombs with two landing in civilian areas. For more on the situation in Kherson, executive producer and co-host Zarina Zabriskie. I'm walking back from the interview and the siren is on again. Just stopped, but the air raid is on. And also there are sounds of explosions that I just missed because I was looking on my map. The problem with the map is that all the streets have their old names and recently they have been renamed. So it's very hard to find where you're going. I hope I'm going to the right place. I have 10 minutes to walk. And I'm trying to stay by the wall and it won't hit you. Here it goes again. My guess it's a mortar. I'm walking past some destroyed walls and fences everything is closed and locked nobody's around i'm walking by a market uh, another explosion markets are not good places to be by because the russians love to bomb markets i'm by a bus station uh, i was here on the liberation day and at that point, there was no gas, no electricity, no connection, no nothing here, basically. And people were here out in the streets selling kerosene lamps. Curfews at 8 p.m. But in reality, by 4 or 5, it is an empty town. It's easier when you report. You're a reporter, you're doing your work. Uh, you're just doing your work. That's how it goes. And people saying goodbye to each other and leaving. And when I am just a person walking down the street and not reporting, it's a different kind of feeling. So I prefer reporting anyway. There are more flags down the street and I'm very close to the big store. Uh, which also has this perhaps false illusion of being a safe place because the windows are all covered with cardboards. More dogs, they're everywhere and they have a different look here. They're a little more humble and they always have their ears 
pressed into their heads, which I believe is a sign of them being scared. So they're perpetually scared. I can't get over how different this place is from the day after the liberation on 14th of November, when the images of people hugging each other with tears in their eyes, with flags is etched on my retina. I can't get rid of it. I see the empty streets and ruins. And I also see like a double screen. I see those people who can finally breathe after nine months. Thank you, Zarina. It was quieter in central and western Ukraine. The Ministry of Internal Affairs reported a leak in a major gas pipeline caused an explosion and fire in the Lubensky district of Poltava. The fire was allowed to burn itself out and no injuries were reported. At the time of publication, there were no reports on the cause of the blast. Here is the news from the Russian front. The Security Service of Ukraine, SBU, took responsibility for a drone attack on an electrical substation in Snagost, Kursk, knocking out power to seven settlements. When asked about the strike, an anonymous source in the SBU told BBC Ukraine, quote, The Russians must understand that if they are going to continue to attack Ukrainian energy facilities, they will receive a tough response. Unquote. In the Pervomaisky district of Vladivostok, a commissariat office was firebombed overnight, causing light damage. Russian state media claimed that a person dumped liquid on the building and set it on fire, but it went out after a few minutes. Almost 200 commissariat offices across Russia have been firebombed in the last 12 months. Now let's talk about theater-wide events. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky held a stavka yesterday. The main topics were the situation on the front, the ongoing offensive, the supply of artillery ammunition and a report on Russia's military-industrial capabilities. Poland's investigation into the November 15, 2022 S-300 air defense missile that landed in Rzeczpospolita, killing two Polish citizens, concluded Ukraine fired it. The missile was identified as a 5B-55 manufactured by the Russian Federation and fired from a Ukrainian SIM site. Former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, John Herbst, said that the American public is not being given enough information by the White House about why it is important to continue to support Ukraine. Quote, the only thing that Ukraine desperately needs and that we continue to refuse to provide is a clear declaration of our strategic goals. The silly empty as much as it takes means absolutely nothing. Unquote. 
the Secretary of the National Defense Security Council NDSC of Ukraine, Oleksiy Danilov, said that part of the production of Ukrainian missiles had to be moved out of the country. Quote, this is a closed program, and no one will tell you its status. I can tell you that, unfortunately, Russia hit the place where these missiles were assembled. Now, we have moved a certain part of production outside our country. Unquote. The Ministry of Health of Ukraine announced that women in medical fields, including pharmacists, and who are registered for conscription, will not be restricted from traveling out of the country. The travel ban was supposed to start on October the 1st. Russian ultra-nationalist and military historian Sergei Grigorov does not believe that Russian troops can, quote, go on the offensive due to the significance of the forces of the Ukrainian armed forces, unquote, and added that Russia should not repeat the meat assault still being used. The Minister of Defense of the Netherlands told reporters that Ukraine would receive the first batch of F-16s in 2024. Training for pilots, mechanics and ground crews is expected to take six to eight months and still has not started in Romania or the United States. The Bulgarian parliament is considering allowing the transfer of expired S-300 anti-aircraft missiles to Ukraine, where they can be repaired and used. The measure has broad support and is expected to pass. Writing for War on the Rocks, U.S. Major Robert Rose stated that, quote, context matters in war, and the U.S. military is not trained to win in the conditions Ukraine faces. While training on weapon system and combat exercises have undoubtedly proved valuable, it is not clear what exactly the United States has offered Ukraine in terms of threat understanding, with which she has been fighting since 2014. The U.S. Army does not train for this type of combat of attrition. Unquote. Here is our assessment. With the current battlefield conditions and a lack of air supremacy, we maintain our early assessment that no US, NATO or allied nation commander would commit to launching an offensive operation in Ukraine. We maintain that the reluctance of Ukraine's allies to commit to providing the weapon systems needed to decisively and require training in an expedited fashion has needlessly prolonged the war. It is also partially responsible for enabling Russia to build the most extensive network of static defenses since World War II. It would be unfair to call NATO-provided training of Ukrainian soldiers completely ineffective. Ukraine has sent a mix of experienced combat soldiers, recruits who have completed the Ukrainian equivalent of basic training, and raw recruits to be trained. However, Experienced Ukrainian soldiers have steadily reported that foreign instructors have shunned questions about using low-cost drones built using dual-use materials for reconnaissance and artillery spotting. There are also frequent reports that there is too much focus on urban warfare, which Ukrainian commanders avoid, and insufficient training on trench clearing, combat medicine and weapons skills.
The reasons for the steady but slow progress of Ukraine's offensive are complex. The Ministry of Defense of Ukraine has also made mistakes and underinvestments. Fortunately, the Russian Federation has only shown flashes of competence while clinging to Russian Field Marshal Georgi Zhukov 1943 troop and artillery tactics, mid late 20th century standoff weapons and modern drones. In conclusion, we agree with Major Rose. Multiple news agencies reported that Ukraine was sent a letter listing key reforms that had to be completed within a specific timetable for U.S. military aid to continue. The letter was authentic, but the reports of the letter's intent were exaggerated. The U.S. Embassy in Ukraine released a statement clarifying that the letter was not a list of demands, saying, quote, as part of an ongoing dialogue with Ukraine and stakeholders in Ukraine's future success, the United States provided a proposed list of priority reforms for discussion and feedback. This list was provided as a basis for consultation with the government of Ukraine and key partners as part of our enduring support to Ukraine and its efforts to integrate into Europe, a goal the United States strongly supports. What's going on in Russia? It's time for Mobix, Mobilization and Mir. Russian Minister of Defense Sergei Shoigu took personal control of the digitization of military registration and enlistment offices after it was revealed that claims the system would be ready for the biannual fall conscription were false. The effort was meant to make tracking conscription-age men and those ignoring summons easier and enable mobilization by app and SMS text. We can confirm through our analysis and open-source information that aspiring dentist and Colonel General Ramzan Dondon Kadyrov is very much alive. Deputy Commander of Rosgvardia forces in the so-called Donetsk People's Republic Alexander Khodakovsky shared a video claiming he survived a HIMARS attack. An accurate assessment would require an in-person investigation, but based on the video, the incident appears staged. Minister of Defense Shoigu said the so-called special military operation would last at least until 2025. Despite saying that plans would help reach intended goals, he never said what those goals are. The Ministry of Defense was forced to clarify that Shoigu's intent was not to declare that fighting would end in 2025, but a plan was being created for the next 18 months. The SBU said it targeted officers of the Russian 70th Motor Rifle Regiment, who were holding a meeting in occupied Radensk. A video showed a building troops entered hit by a single rocket fired by HIMARS. The SBU claimed eight officers were killed and seven wounded. We could not independently verify the claim. On the same day we could firmly declare Kadyrov is alive, there are questions about whether the Russian commander of the Black Sea fleet, Viktor Sokolov, is. 
Russian social media accounts claimed that Sokolov was killed on September the 22nd by a missile strike on the Black Sea Fleet headquarters. On September the 25th, the Special Operation Forces, or SSO, of Ukraine issued a statement saying Sokolov and 34 additional officers were killed in the strike, including Sokolov. Yesterday, Kremlin Press Secretary Dmitry Peskov told reporters he had no information on the death of the commander of the Black Sea Fleet. Shortly after, Sokolov appeared in a meeting via video conference with Sergei Shoigu. The heavily edited video made one clear. The Kremlin wanted the world to know that Sokolov is still alive. The SSO of Ukraine released a follow-up statement after his video appearance. Quote, Available sources claim that among the dead was the commander of the Russian Navy. Many still have not been identified, since the Russians were urgently forced to publish an answer with an apparently alive Sokolov, our units are clarifying the information. Unquote. So Sokolov is alive. Not so fast. There is more than one problem with today's video that raises questions about Sokolov. The Black Sea Fleet commander appeared sitting in the same distinctive white chair, by the same window, with the same four flags, in today's video conference as he did on July the 31st. That would be impossible if the office were at the Black Sea Fleet headquarters in Sevastopol or the secondary headquarters, also recently destroyed. Since February 24, 2022, the Kremlin has never forcefully denied the death of a high-ranking Russian officer to have the denials become untrue. When senior officials have been killed, Kremlin policy has been to admit it quickly or hope the questions go away. With the available information, we cannot make a conclusive determination on whether Sokolov is sipping tea with Evgeny Prigozhin or not. At the time of publication, another video was released by Moscow, which only created more questions. While they claim the video is from today, Sokolov talks about events from a month ago. The former mayor of Tchaikovsky in the Permkrai region, Alexei Tretyakov, was captured by Ukrainian forces near Klishchivka. Tretyakov was sentenced to three years in a Russian penal colony in 2019 for illegally providing a city-owned apartment to a mistress who worked in the mayor's office. During his intake, he said he volunteered on September the 7th, was trained for little more than a week in Lysychansk, and was sent to Bakhmut. After a request by the Russian state Duma, an investigation by the Southern Military District confirmed that Mobics in some units were not provided required food or needed medications while deployed to the line of conflict. That's it. That's the whole report. They didn't say they were going to do anything about it. Private military company Wagner Group's official telegram channel Prigozhinskab denied claims that the company was being dismantled. Quote, 
comrades, we inform you that Wagner PMC has not stopped and continues its work in the African and Belarusian areas. There is no talk of any closure of the company. The PMC command still solves all assigned tasks and manages the company. Quote. Less than 24 hours later, multiple unofficial PMC Wagner social media channels started recruiting for PMC Convoy, founded by a former Wagner commander based in occupied Crimea. The Wagner Group Council of Commanders appeared to publicly confirm that Evgeny Prigozhin and Dmitry Utkin are dead, declaring October 1 as a day to, quote, honor the memories of the heroes who gave their lives for the country. More than a month has passed since the monstrous tragedy in the skies over the Tver region, but many refuse to believe in the death of heroes of Russia Evgeny Viktorovich Prigozhin and Dmitry Valerievich Utkin. They left us, although they could have done so much for our motherland." Unquote. Iran released a video showing an upgraded Shahid-136 kamikaze drone with a turbine engine. The much quieter UAV is allegedly entering serial production, with Tehran claiming they can produce the upgraded drone at scale. And that's what happened on September the 26th. Your support of my home, Ukraine, helps us make history and protect the future for all. Now let me turn the podcast over to our executive producer and my co-host Zarina Zabrisky, who is reporting from Free Herson. Yes, my name is Johan Fredriksson. I'm an international correspondent for Swedish television Channel 4, or TV4 Sweden. And we are the biggest private channel in Scandinavia. And I've been working as a foreign news correspondent 33 years. Been covering the wars on, on, in the Balkans and Afghanistan, Iran, Iraq, Syria. Uh, I've been to Ukraine now. This is the 11th time since the February 22. My first question, since you've seen and you've been to and you covered so many wars, how is the Russian war of aggression in Ukraine different from the other wars that you have covered? For me, uh, this war is the most important conflict uh, I've covered, I think, actually. I think it's an epic battle between the war crimes infested regime in Moscow trying to invade and crush the identity and the existence of a fragile democracy. And for me, we have to help Ukraine. It's for me obvious that the Ukrainian fighters are also fighting for us in, in the rest of Europe. Back to the situation that you have just been to, which is in Zaporizhia, I understand. Can you tell us, please, about what happened? We were out uh, filming a police patrol south of Zaporizhia, approximately five kilometers from the front line. And we were not supposed to go any closer because it was only the police that had the authority to help us or escort us this day. And we did some filming and uh, did some interviewing. And then we went to a place to film a big 
house that was damaged from from the Russian shelling. We were just about to leave, actually. So we started to prepare to jump in the cars again when uh, we suddenly just hear the sound of of a drone uh, flying over our head. And I also heard Ivan Karchenko, our driver, and also the policeman Andrei was shouting, Adrona, Adrona. I just threw myself on the ground and heard a big explosion behind me. And then I turned around, I saw saw the the car was in, in flames. So I just went up and the other policemen started shouting, come on, come on, come on, we have to evacuate. And uh, I just pointed to my cameraman, Daniel Stolzek, you know, we have to go, we have to go. And then we jumped into the police car and we were under their supervision, so to say. So they were very eager to help us, of course, to get away from this situation. So we jumped into the car and they drove us to a rather more safe place, uh, maybe one kilometers from the from this place and uh, Ivan and the <clears throat> the police officer were still at the scene uh, trying to fight the fire but uh, it was hopeless it was like an explosive fire and uh, a lot of people have seen the the wreckage and the, and the pictures and it's totally destroyed and uh, we all were still alive some of us were slightly injured among them uh, our local producer Alexander Pavlov and he he got some injuries on his arm and on his hand and also the policeman Andrei got some injuries in hand arm and leg and also the other policeman Mikhail he got some uh, shrapnel in his uh, groin I think or in his back so three of us slightly injured three of us without any physical injuries so those extremely lucky and Jovan, was your car marked clearly with the press signs and were your gear marked as press? Getting the accreditation for Ukraine, every journalist has to have the press mark on his helmet, both sides on his helmet, and the press mark it on, on, the, on the vest. And uh, during this day, we were escorted and the policemen had actually arranged this trip for us. We were not allowed to go on our own, so we had to follow the police car. If you look at it, oh, f- this was really safe, you know. The, our driver just bought this car. It was a very nice Audi, and I know he was very reluctant to put any tape on it. And of course, I don't think at all that would have helped because it was a black Audi and uh, we were clearly marked with press and there was no doubt about it that you were journalists. I've been covering this war for almost two years from the beginning of the full-scale invasion and I know that the Russian military tend to target both press and paramedics. Do you think that in your case, realized that they were targeting press? I'm pretty sure on that because uh, they know how to deal with the drones. They have good surveillance. Uh, they can see what people is on the ground are on the ground. And according to the local authorities and also the central authorities in, in um, Zaporizhia, they were without doubt treating this as a war crime directed on the press. So for me, it's clear that they were attacking us and uh, attacking uh, foreign media. I uh, have to ask you, how are you feeling now? I am very happy to be alive. I'm, uh, I know, put big value on my life and, and all the friends and family around me and also my friends in Ukraine. That's, of course, the first thing. But of course, it's a bit uh, 
confusing in a way because you tend both to feel filled with joy because you survived, but also some kind of uh, loss because I'm I'm sad, you know, that some people got injured. I was sad about all the equipment and the car that was destroyed. It's also, I'm extremely angry on, on the people, you know, staging this war. I'm, I'm, I'm so fed up with this uh, continuous war crimes against both civilians and also the press. I'm filled with anger about the way that they every day attack civilians and infrastructure. I'm angry at the Russians because they attack Ukraine and, and also attack me personally and, and my team. And, and, and I'm angry, of course. I mean, I'm disgusted, you know, no respect for, for international laws and regulation and, and human rights. So that's, that's a shame. And we have these uh, activities from a permanent member of the Se Security Council. It's disgusting, horrendous. What is your opinion on the foreign press coverage? We've seen, you know, the news cycle go down. Uh, and that's unfortunately the way it is with conflicts. It's very hot in the beginning. Everyone wants to be there. But after a while, uh, some media lose interest. And that's a big danger with this war. It, it might go on for, for a while now. And we have to keep up the pressure. We have to be there. We have to, to, to bring the stories out to the world and our viewers and our readers. And I think it's uh, crucial for, for us as media that we are uh, in Ukraine to listen to the Ukrainians and to share their opinions and also to bring to light all these crimes from the Russians and to keep the pressure up on our politicians to continue supporting Ukraine in this war. Will you go back to cover the war in Ukraine? I'm uh, dedicated about this war and I, I'd love to go back. But of course, uh, my boss is my boss and, and he sends me <laughs> on assignments. But I doubt that this was the last time. Thank you so much for everything that you are doing for Ukraine. I hope you get some good time back home with your loved ones and recover well. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Also, nice, nice to talk to you. Slava Ukraina. Herom Slava. We are here with Alexander Pavlov, producer for the Swedish group that was attacked near Zaporozhye and a journalist with almost 30 years of experience who was personally awarded by the president of Ukraine, Volodymyr Zelensky, for his bravery during the full-scale invasion. Alexander, how are you this morning? Oh, I'm okay. I'm in shape already. The arm was a bit injured. Tell us from the beginning what happened to you near the Parisia. It happened in Stepnagirsk, the small city approximately 30 kilometers from Zaporizhia. We went there in order to cover the life of the civilians close to the front line zone. That was uh, the task. Uh, we've got uh, all the approvals from the military authorities and from the police. And we approached the most dangerous district, and uh, this district is constantly shelled by Russians. 
And um, my Swedish colleagues were filming uh, by the nine-store building in the traces of the previous shellings. Russians lazily shelled with uh, the mortar of uh, 122 calibers. Shells explode something like maximum 500 meters from us. But that wasn't so dangerous, so we kept filming. It was two cars, uh, ours and the police one. Suddenly, one of the policemen, chief of the police of Stepnagirs, Andri, right, the drone is flying. Immediately, I saw the drone approaching me, and I even managed to see some details, some parts of the drones. It was just, but just one or two seconds to make a decision, you see. And I jumped away from, we were in the group, so we were staying by the car. Six persons, two journalists, me, the driver, and two policemen. Everyone managed to jump out. And in the last moment, the pilot of the drone changed the mind. He led the drone onto the car. And uh, he hit it onto the rear door, laying on the ground. I fell down onto the concrete by the house, and I saw the car burning. We came to the police station in the center of the city. When uh, I got the first medical aid, and in one hour, we had been evacuated to Zapori. You wrote on social media uh, describing this attack that you saw, quote-unquote, the evil eye of the drone. Uh, how did it look? It was a very emotional impression. It looked uh, like uh, the drone of the mi- medium size with four propellers. It was approaching me with very big speed. Uh, I think the speed was something like 150-170 kilometers per hour. To be frank, I will never forget this moment I wanted to add. After this happening to you, will you still go back to report from the front? This is my only profession. This is I've been working as a military journalist since the very beginning of the war. Before the war, I had uh, the media agency in uh, Zaporizhia, quite famous, so we made documentary films. The series of our documentaries was dedicated to the EU countries, the stories about the best practices Ukraine can implement. But 24th of February of the last year, I realized no one <laughs> needs it anymore, you see. And I went to Kiev on 25th of, of February. And since that time, I've been working as as a producer and as a journalist. Why do you think it is important that military journalists continue to cover the war? I'm absolutely sure the world must know what is going on in Ukraine. And my mind, my philosophy is to, to help foreign media because after these publications, the politicians make the proper decisions in the favor of Ukraine. Thank you very much for sharing your story. And please stay safe meanwhile and have a good day. Uh, thank you. You've been listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. To help keep us independent, please consider providing financial support by becoming a patron. Want on-demand news in your hand? Download the Google News app and make Malcontent News one of your favorites to receive breaking news updates. Thank you for listening.